Amen. Amen. Let's uh, turn to the Scripture. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 this morning. It's on page 1161 in these Bibles. We're going to read verses 4 to 6. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Hallelujah. We are this morning concluding a five-part series we've been doing, which is based around what happened in the Reformation, the Reformation which began 500 years ago this month, October 1517, Martin Luther went and nailed some uh, theological questions on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg in Germany and started a, a revolution. Uh, and just to help us again, because I know this always causes confusion, when we talk about Martin Luther, we're not talking about Martin Luther King, who actually got his name from Martin Luther. Neither are we talking about TV's Luther. We're not even talking about Luther Vandross. We're talking about this Luther, Martin Luther, who was a German lawyer, then monk, then reformer, who 500 years ago started this freedom movement, because what the Reformation really brought about was human liberty, human freedom. It set people free from all kinds of stuff they were tied up in, all kinds of uh, religious knots that people had got tangled in. The Reformation cut through that and brought people into freedom, into liberty, as the gospel of Jesus Christ was again declared with clarity and power. And there are five summary statements which kind of sum up what the Reformation was about, which we've been looking at over these five weeks. The first one is Scripture alone, that this book is our ultimate authority. This book is where we meet Jesus. It's not just about Jesus, but we actually meet Jesus through this book. It is God's God's Spirit-breathed Word to us is our authority, that everything we do as a church, we do under the authority of this book. There's no other authority which takes authority over this, but we recognize this is God's Word to us. The second thing we looked at was Christ alone. What this means is that because of what Christ has done for us, we can have confidence that we are justified. That means that we're considered right in God's sight, that we come in faith to Jesus and we're united with Him. We, we're counted as Christ in the sight of God. That means there's no more spiritual hokey-cokey. There's no more, am I good enough? Am I not good enough? Have I been good enough this week for God? Have I not been good enough? It's all about how good Jesus is. The third thing we looked at was grace alone. In Martin Luther's great phrase, the law says, do this, and it is never done. Grace says, believe in this, and everything is already done. What the grace of God means is that uh, our attempts to come to God are rendered and exposed for being useless. Human attempts to justify ourselves always end up either in pride, I feel good about myself because I've done something commendable, or in a sense of failure, I haven't been good enough. And what grace does is to remove both pride and failure and say you are just accepted because of God's grace. Nothing else you can add, nothing you need to add. Last week the theme was faith alone. How do we come into this relationship with Jesus? 
How do we receive grace? Well, it's just by believing, by saying, yes, Jesus, I believe in you. I trust you. And then today, as we finish this series, we're going to be looking at the last of these five statements, which is, to the glory of God alone. To the glory of God alone. Now, what is glory? It's a word that we've already used in our songs this morning. It's a word which appears regularly in the Bible. It's a word we use a lot in our prayers and our worship. But I think it's a word we can struggle to grasp the meaning of. What does, it really, what does glory really mean? It might be that uh, if we talk more in terms of something which is glorious, that helps us perhaps to grasp a little bit more what we're talking about when we talk about glory. Um, let me give you an example. On Wednesday this week, I was beginning to prepare for this morning's message, and uh, uh, I had a stinking cold last week, and so being in, I felt like I needed some fresh air, and I was trying to work in the office next door, and everybody was in the office, and it was very loud, and I thought, I need to get out. So I went down to the beach, the beach hut, and did some sermon prep at the beach hut, where there's fresh air, and it was much more peaceful, and it was, it was a much better place, actually, to do. I, mean, I ought to do it more often. It's fantastic. And... Uh, it was glorious. It was a fantastic day. And I saw one or two people who I knew walking past as I was sitting there, and they stopped to talk. And of course, when you're sitting down on the beach and it's glorious, you talk, isn't it a lovely day? Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it glorious? And when I say that, you all, you all know what I mean, don't, don't you? You know what I'm talking about. If I say it's glorious down at the beach, you know that this, what, the sky looks fantastic, and the sea looks fantastic, and old Harry is shining, and you can see the Isle of Wight, and it looks, it's glorious. And when we think like that about what is glorious, that helps us to lean a little bit towards what we mean by glory. Glory is something that captures our senses and calls out our praises. So sitting on the beach, trying to prepare, preparing a sermon about the glory of God, talking to somebody I knew walking past, there's a sense of the beauty of the sky and the sea and the cliffs and the rest kind of captures the senses and be, and it calls out praises because with somebody you know talking about what you're seeing, you want to talk about it, you want to draw attention to it. It's obvious. Of course the sky looks great, of course the sea looks great, but you want to say, isn't it glorious? You want, it's caught your senses and you want to praise it. That's what glory is like. And here in 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul says that there is glory for us to see, and what is most glorious is found in Jesus Christ. If you want to see what is most glorious, you look in the face of Jesus Christ. So we ought to think about the glory of God and the face. Now, we are, as human beings, very interested in faces. Go into a newsagent, and what you will see, if you look at the magazine racks, is that 50% of the men's magazines and 100% of the women's magazines have a picture of a beautiful face in it, almost always a woman's face. It doesn't matter whether it's a men's magazine or a woman's magazine. It always has a picture of a beautiful woman's face on the front. That's really interesting. We're drawn to faces. Or think about a major technological revolution of the last few years, the selfie stick. This is kind of the, uh, the black swan of our age, you know, the black swan theory that nobody had ever thought about black swans. People knew what swans were, but the thought of a black swan was unimaginable until people went to Australia and found there were black swans, and suddenly the whole world changes. Black swans, who'd have ever thought of that? Selfie sticks are a bit like that. Who would have ever thought of walking around with a stick in front of your face? It's just an extraordinary idea. It's looking at the world in reverse. 
But the, the thing is that humans have always, always wanted to capture images of what, of what we're seeing. You think about all those ancient cave paintings, which people get very excited about, where people from thousands of years ago have drawn scenes onto the walls of caves. Think about the whole history of art, how significant art is, how people have always drawn pictures, always sought to capture a scene, often sought to capture faces in art. We are image-driven people. We want to capture what we can see. And the invention of the, the camera changed how we look at the world because suddenly we can pick up a camera and we can snap. And rather than the labor and the effort and the skill required to draw a picture, and if you ever tried drawing a picture of a face, remember art classes at school trying to draw a face, I mean, you end up with a hideous mess. It doesn't really look anything attractive it's, unless you're really skilled. But with a camera, you pick up the camera and you snap, and we begin to take pictures. We take pictures of people's faces, especially because we're drawn to the face. We're resolutely drawn to the face. We're like moss to the flame. It's why all those magazines have a beautiful face on the cover. We take pictures of faces. And that's because it's by the face that we know people and we make all kinds of assessments about people. We, we look at somebody's face and we tend to make instant judgments about what kind of person they are because actually the face is, is a window to the soul. And so we look at somebody and somebody we've never met before, we look at their face and we think immediately, well, are they attractive or unattractive? And we also think what kind of person they are. And we tend to make immediate judgments about their personality and about their character just by what their face looks like, because the face does reveal something about the soul. And of course, the faces are so important to us because the way that we recognize people is by their face. We know each other through our faces. There's a medical condition, prosopagnosia, face blindness, that some people have this, what must be a terrible issue really, where you can't remember people's faces. You have a face blindness. You don't recognize faces in the way that most of us do. You know what it's like if you uh, have met somebody maybe a number of times, but you haven't caught their name or you've forgotten their name. You know how embarrassing that is, how awkward that is? I know, I know a few people like that at my running club. There's a few people I've kind of been running with for the last year, but for one, one reason or another, never quite got their names worked out. And it gets to that point where it's just too embarrassing to ever ask. And you kind of hope that somebody else will say their name in your hearing so you can work out what their name is. It's just embarrassing, isn't it? Well, if you've got prosopagnosia, then you're like that the whole time. It's not just you can't remember somebody's name, but you can't remember their face. And for us humans, it's all about the face. It's how you recognize people. Now, what the smartphone has done is to turn our face fascination around. But people walk around the world now like this, looking in their own faces. There's an ancient story, the story of, of Narcissus, who uh, was so enamored with his own beauty that he stared in a pool until he died that he was so fixed on the glorious beauty of his face that he couldn't turn away. Everything else became marginal, and in the end, he, he was killed by his narcissism. And what the selfie does is to put us at the center of all events. It's this weird thing now that you go around the world and people have to include themselves. It's like no picture is valid, no picture is real, 
unless it has a picture of my face in it. Uh, last, last year, Grace and I went to Istanbul visiting some friends in, in the church out there we're connected with, and we went to the Hagia Sophia, which is the, this most extraordinary building on the edge of the Bosphorus. For the last 1,500 years, it's dominated the Bosphorus. It's essentially a Roman building, so central in the story of the Byzantines and the Ottomans, and uh, such an important building still in, in Istanbul. It is one of the most magnificent, one of the most extraordinary, one of the most history-rich buildings in the world. And I've been there a couple of times, and when I go in there, I just want to stand and look at it because it is overwhelming. But the thing I noticed was that all around me, people weren't looking at the building. They were looking at themselves, taking pictures of themselves. And that's how often the world seems to be, that we're obsessed with faces, but the smartphone has turned it all around, and we're obsessed with our own faces. We, and we see our faces everywhere now. It's not just in the smartphone. Just think about how many mirrored surfaces there are. There are so many, our houses are full of mirrors, but there's so many mirrored surfaces, even here with windows and cars and shiny paint. We are seeing our faces reflected back to us the whole time. And I do wonder what impact that has upon our kind of mass psychology. I think it's part of the reason why in the United States, $8 billion a year is spent on cosmetics. Because we're obsessed with our own faces. The more we see our faces, the more self-conscious we become. The more like narcissists we become. And, of course, in the end, selfie-obsession kills narcissists. It's not always easy to be in the spotlight. And many people are living kind of always in the spotlight. The focus on their own face. Now, we are meant to be drawn to a face. And it's a face that brings us into a greater reality than any selfie or other picture can. It's a face that, when we gaze upon, brings us into truth. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory, displayed where? In the face of Christ. Now, if we don't see the face of Christ, we have got spiritual prosopagnosia. We've got spiritual face blindness. We're not seeing what is most important to see because it's in Christ's face that we see God. It's in the face of Christ we see what is most real and most beautiful. It's in the face of Christ we see what is most glorious. And if we're not focused on the face of Christ, we've got life in reverse. It's, it's like we're walking around looking at ourselves the whole time looking at the world in reverse. We don't understand what is truly glorious. And so Paul says here, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And if we don't see the face of Jesus, it is like we're blinded. It's like we're just walking around, looking at ourselves, missing what's actually going on. You don't see the Hagia Sophia. You don't see the Grand Canyon. You don't see the Taj Mahal. You don't see Big Ben. You don't see them because you're just taking pictures of yourself. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. If you're not looking at Jesus, you're just not seeing right. You're missing out on what is glorious. And the Reformation was all about seeing clearly. 
The Reformation was all about seeing again how we should see. The Reformation was about the lights coming on and seeing the light in the light. There's a very practical application for us in this. The first thing is to think about the glory of God and other people. If we always put ourselves center frame, we're going to miss the glory of God. If we're not looking at Jesus, we're not going to see the glory of God. And it's very easy for us to live as if we're the stars of our own personal movies the whole time. We're very aware of ourselves, this jangling bundle of emotions and experiences and sensations. And we can go through life kind of thinking that we're the the star of our own personal movie. And that quickly can become a selfishness which says that I should have whatever I want whenever I want it, that actually life is all about me. And it's like everything else just becomes background scenery to our selfies. That the only reason the Hagia Sophia or the Taj Mahal was built, the only reason the Grand Canyon exists is so that I can stand in front of it and have my picture taken. That's what life becomes like. An essentially selfish way to live. And if we're living that way, how are we going to see other people as genuinely valuable? If life just becomes about me, if, I, if it just becomes about me as a star of my own personal movie, how am I ever going to see other people as precious? And it's very interesting here that Paul, as he writes this, describes his attitude. He and Timothy, this letter comes from, in verse 5, he says, we are your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul and Timothy have become servants of the church Why have they done that? How have they done that? It's because in seeing Jesus, in seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that enables you to see other people. So the light comes on, you see Christ, you see the glory of God, and that lights up, illuminates others, so that you're able to see them and to serve them. And that's the way that the Apostle Paul lived. This is such an important message in our world. You know, there's there's a whole kind of band of thought in our world, which is actually really hostile to the human race. There's those people who would say that actually in some way the human race is a kind of a cancer on the face of the earth. The the problem with the earth is the people. There's too many people and the wrong kind of people. And if there were less people, the world would be better. The, The world is good, but people are bad. Humans are a kind of cancer on the face of the earth. And that is a worldview which is entirely detached from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Because when you see Jesus, when you get a glimpse of his glory, the lights come on and that enables you to see people. It enables you to to look out. Rather than looking at ourselves, it enables us to look out and to see others and to see how precious they are and how valuable they are and how others are to be loved and to served because we see them in the light of Christ. In his first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 43, Paul talks about resurrection. He says that we're going to be raised in glory. And when you see the glory of Christ, it gives us, gives us a hope for what will happen to us, that I will be raised to glory in Christ, because of Christ, by his grace. But it also means that we look at one another, we look at other people, and we see people who have potential to also be glorious because of what Christ has done. That rather than being kind of things that get in our way, 
rather than being a cancer on the face of the earth, actually, every man, woman, and child on the planet today has the potential to be glorious because Jesus is glorious, and in responding to his glory, we get caught up to share in that glory. And that changes how you look at people. It does. It has to. I have to keep preaching this to ourselves. I, and I have to keep preaching this to myself because it's so easy to start to see people as the problem. I, I, my, my kind of emotional uh, venting moment of the day is watching the 10 o'clock news, and I enjoy shouting at the TV when the 10 o'clock <laughs> news is on. And the other night, Nancy was getting really cross with me because of things I was saying about people. And, I, and, and, and it's, just, it's, it's just my way of having fun. But actually, there's something, right, something in the rebuke of my 16-year-old daughter to me, which is right, because actually the people that I was kind of mark, mocking and criticizing and laughing at, actually they have the potential to be glorious. And we need to keep reminding ourselves of this, that those people who irritate us, those people who get in the way, those people who stand in front when we're trying to take a picture of ourselves, they have potential to be glorious, just as we do, because of the glory of Christ. And when we see the glory of God, when we stand in the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, it changes the way, not only we think about God, it changes the way we think about people. And so Paul became a servant. Why? Because he'd seen who Jesus was. And that changed how he thought about people. Second practical application is the glory of God in creation. It says here in verse 6, God said, let light shine out of darkness. God did say, let light shine out of darkness. Paul there is quoting from Genesis, Genesis 1 verse 3. Genesis 1 verse 4 goes on to say, God saw that the light was good. God spoke and said, let light shine out of darkness. And God saw the light and said, the light is good. If we want to see the goodness of creation, we need to stand in the light. Stand in the light of God's glory. It's when we stand in the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that the lights come on. When you see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, it illuminates everything else. Suddenly the water tastes sweeter and the sunset is more captivating and the rainbow is more breathtaking when you see the one who has caused them to come into being. When the lights come on, because you're looking at him, it enables you to see everything better. You're no longer caught in a, a dull twilight, but you see things as they're meant to be seen. Again, another kind of powerful worldview in our world today is that the universe is essentially dry and mechanistic and blind and cruel. And that's so different from what the Christian gospel teaches. That the universe isn't dry and mechanistic and blind and cruel. The universe is created by an awesome, loving God. And when we see his glory, when the lights come on for us, then we get to see the universe he's made in more multicolored, more wonderful splendor, in, in more glory. Let me read you a quote. John Calvin, another of the reformers. Now, if anybody knows anything about John Calvin today, the stereotype, the caricature is he was an old misery who stopped anybody from having fun. It's rubbish. It's, that's, full, that's fake news, which has been spread over the centuries. Calvin, like the other reformers, he was pursuing the glory of God, and that made the lights come on. Look what he says. Now then, if we consider for what end he created food, we shall find that he consulted not only for our necessity, 
but also for our enjoyment and delight. What's Calvin saying? It's not just a dry, mechanistic universe. The reason that we eat food isn't simply to survive. God's given us food which tastes good just because it tastes good. That's why God makes food tasty and you're meant to eat tasty food because that's good and it somehow reflects the glory of God. It's not just about necessity, it's about enjoyment, it's about delight. It goes on, thus in clothing, the end was in addition to necessity, comeliness and honor. That means your clothes make you look better than you otherwise would. It's true. We're a society obsessed by nakedness, but... Most people look so much better with clothes on. Grace, Grace and I were walking along Studlands the other day, and there was this, it was a bit cold, so there weren't many naturists out, praise God, but there, there, there was one couple. She was all wrapped up in every layer of clothing possible. He was sitting there butt naked. She was much more attractive than he was, I can promise you. You look better with clothes on. God has given you clothes for comeliness and honor. And in herbs, fruits, and trees, besides their various uses, gracefulness of appearance and sweetness of smell, were it not so, the prophet would not enumerate among the mercies of God wine that maketh the heart of man glad and oil to make his face shine. God's given this stuff. He's given the plants and the trees. He's given the food. He's given the oil and the wine, not just out of utility, but because they're good, because they're beautiful, because they in some way reflect his glory, because they bring us enjoyment and delight. He goes on, has the Lord adorned flowers, next slide Andy, with all the beauty which spontaneously presents itself to the eye and a sweet odor which delights a sense of smell and shall it be unlawful for us to enjoy that beauty and this odor? What? Has he not so distinguished colors as to make some more agreeable than others? Has he not given qualities to gold and silver, ivory and marble, thereby rendering them precious above other metals or stones? In short, has he not given many things of value without having any necessary use? The world is full of stuff, which in itself, it doesn't need to look that good, it doesn't need to smell that good, it doesn't need to taste that good, but it does. Why? Because we live in a dry, cold, mechanistic universe? No, because there's a glorious God who's made it. And when we stand in the light of the glory of the knowledge of, the, of God in the face of Jesus Christ, suddenly the lights come on and we're able to we see it more fully. We Christians should see the richness of creation more fully, more deeply, more richly than anyone else. We've got a deeper insight into it than the most high-powered educated biologist or chemist, 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 chemist or physicist. Because when we see the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ, it turns the lights on for us and we see all these things given to us by God and his bounty for our enjoyment, the glory of God and creation. In a, in a godless worldview... In the blinded worldview, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. You only see things in terms of their utility. What is this worth? What can I get out of it? What does it achieve? But lit by the glory of God, we see things in their true beauty. And God has made things beautiful. Why? Because beauty is good. The third, or a third practical application is the glory of God and joy. It's another group of Christian leaders, the Westminster Assembly. These were men who we would talk about now as Puritans. And again, if you know anything about Puritans, it's the Puritans. They were even 
Calvin was miserable and the Puritans were even more miserable and they stopped anybody from doing anything that was fun. And again, it's fake news. It's not how it was. It's not what history records. In uh, 1646, 1647, 130 years after Luther had attacked the church door in Wittenberg, uh, a group of, uh, of, of these theologians gathered in Westminster and wrote up the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a series of questions to help people explain their faith. And the first question, very famously, of this catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? Why are human beings here? What is the point of our existence on planet Earth? Why are we here? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God. Yes, that's why we're here. It's all about the glory of God. Glory to God alone. Second part of the sentence, and to enjoy him forever. Those two things go absolutely, resolutely hand in hand. Why are we here? We're to glorify God and to enjoy him. And you can't glorify God unless you are enjoying him. If you're miserable about God, you're not bringing glory to God. Glory to God comes when you enjoy God. And you know his joy. Know his joy at work in you. That's what it's all about. That's what human existence is about. Knowing the glory of God, enjoying the glory of God, bringing glory to God through our joy in God. That's the whole deal. Johann Sebastian Bach, famously at the end of his Compositions, when he was satisfied with them, would write, Soli Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. There's a picture of one of his manuscripts there. You can see Soli Deo Gloria on the corner there. Glory to God alone. Why did he do that? Mike Reeves, in his book, Why the Reformation Still Matters, a fantastic book we've been using a lot to help us in preparing these talks, says this, through his music, through Bach's music, he wanted to sound out the beauty and glory of God, so pleasing both God and people. The glory of God, he believed, gratuitously, that means ridiculously extravagantly, rings out through creation, bringing joy wherever it is appreciated. And that is worth living for and promoting. Yes, in all things, solideo gloria, glory to God alone, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When we see that, our eyes are opened. Our eyes are open to see other people as potentially glorious. Our eyes are open to see the glory of creation and its goodness and its beauty. And our eyes are open to know and experience and taste joy. Hallelujah. Glory to God alone. Glory to God alone. Amen. Jesus, I pray that we might be people who look in your face. Well, thank you that those of us who know you in this room, it's not by anything we've done, achieved, labored for, it's purely of your grace. But we know that without that, we too would be blinded by the God of this age. And Lord, think of so many of our friends, people we love, people who themselves potentially can share in the glory of Christ who at this moment still kind of walking around like, it were, like, as it were, staring into a smartphone, looking at the world back to front, blinded by the God of this age. Lord, we pray for your light to come. Pray for scales to fall off eyes. Pray for multitudes of men and women to suddenly have their eyes opened to glory. Just as happened in the Reformation when suddenly all the confusion and the 
legalism and the deadness was swept aside as the gospel was preached and people saw again the gospel, saw again the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and they and the world was changed. I pray, Lord, that we would see that in our day. And I pray, Jesus, for us here, pray for those, those of us who do know you, that we would keep our eyes open to your glory. We keep gazing in your face. And that would shape how we look at other people, would affect how we look at the world. And Jesus said it would fill us with joy. We want to bring you glory. And we do that as we rejoice in you. Thank you, Jesus. You are glorious. Thank you that we will be raised in glory with you. Thank you that we'll partake us in this glory with Christ. Thank you that the gospel which we declare is glorious. It's good news. Glorious good news. Thank you for all your mercies to us. We receive them again today, Jesus. And give you glory. Amen.